Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Speak Plainly podcast, where we speak plainly about things that matter. I am your host, Owl Medicine, best-selling author, host of this podcast, and founder of Decolonize Healthcare. Today, in this podcast, what we're going to be talking about is my new book. It's called Rethinking Broken. I have, in the past, introduced chunks of the book and talked about pieces of it, but... In an effort to make things easy for folks who don't know about it, who maybe aren't already involved in listening to this podcast regularly, I wanted to make a kind of condensed version to introduce people. There's going to be a few parts to this, maybe two, maybe three, probably just two, so I can keep it short and concise. But I want to talk to you about what this process has been like for me, what writing this book has been like. It has been the single most powerful thing I've ever done in my entire life, and I really truly mean that. It has been an unbelievable journey for me, and nothing has done more good for my mental health, my understanding of the world, my understanding of myself, most importantly. And I want to share with you a little bit of what that journey has been like. So for those of you who don't know, my book is Rethinking Broken, Childhood Trauma Didn't Break You, It Trained You. That's the title and subtitle. The little catchphrase I have for it is, you're not broken, you're a highly trained specialist working in the wrong field. And the reason I say that is because my whole philosophy on trauma is an amalgamation of some of the best trauma and developmental biology and neurobiology researchers, all their kind of opinions rolled into one for me as a layperson who is kind of got a touch of the tism. So I like to understand things really, 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 really thoroughly. So I have kind of combined things from I've got quotes in the book from Andrew Huberman. If you don't know him, you should. I'm sure you probably do. And as well as from Gabor Mate, who same. If you don't know him, you should. There's others in there. I talk about some of Brene Brown's work. I talk about many different actual like researchers and not just people who are famous and talking about research, but there's quite a bit in there. My work cited is definitely a, um, it's a bit, it's a bit of a beast, but I'm glad that it is because the reason I chose to put so much research into this book is, and I don't talk in depth about most of the research. I kind of just give you the the highlights of it and then I link the research or work cited the research as it were. So you can look at it yourself if you would so choose. And the reason I've done this is because like the title indicates, Rethinking Broken, I really think at the heart of all of our problems as traumatized people is this concept of I am broken. It's this concept that something inside me is wrong or flawed or screwed up because of the crap that I went through. And the reason that we believe this is because we have evidence. We have a buttload of evidence. Every time we screw something up when we really didn't want to, every time we fly off the handle at somebody because of a misunderstanding, every time we misinterpret neutral data as threatening are the evidence that stacks up in our own head that is proof that we are broken. But what I want to make clear to everyone is that we are not broken. What you see evidence of is not brokenness. What you see evidence of is chronic stress adaption. All of us who have survived trauma or, frankly, the modern freaking world, we have all adapted to chronic stress. Now, the... The WHO, the World Health Organization, they call stress any type of change that brings about physiological strain, which means if the only thing in the world that is constant is change, that means that stress is also a constant because that change, any type of change that brings about a physiological strain, that is stress. And our bodies throughout the millennia as we evolved with nature – 
we needed to learn to deal with stress because it's everywhere all the time, right? So we did. But in our new world, we have a different type of stress. We have a type of stress that is low-grade and constant and never lets up. And that's where the problem enters. Because we are designed biologically to be able to handle short bursts of stress. The quick breakdown is like when I was a kid, they taught us about you stress and distress. And basically, from a biological perspective, the only real difference is you stress, which is like the good stress, because it is short term. Our bodies have evolved to be able to see a threat, respond to the threat, and then find safety and re-regulate and then do it all again. But in our modern world, most of our like life-threatening short like bursts of stress like that are gone. We don't have to deal with them. The type of stress that we have to deal with now is paying our bills and our kids not listening and our boss being an ass and our spouse being frustrated and all of just regular life stuff. And it's this low-grade stress that never goes away, like uh, climate change and the world burning and the fact that we only have like 50 years of farmable or 60 years of farmable soil left on the planet. All of these things are stressors that we are not designed to be able to deal with. We're designed to run away from a bear or a lion or get eaten by said bear or lion, and then you don't have to worry about it anymore, right? So... Stress is, and how we handle stress is a huge part of what life is about as a chronic stress adapted person. So we have to learn how to deal with stress. If we can't change all of our long term stress into short term stress, then what's the best thing that we can do? Well, for me, I talk about emergency medicine and I talk about my my time in refugee care and doing pop-up clinics at and in Seattle at the Chop Chaz and going out to the, the Standing Rock protest in North Dakota and providing care in these places where things were very real very present short-lived threats like it, there was always a low-grade stress there because um, and, and they're being like there was always a low grade stress present at Standing Rock because uh, we were always waiting for the National Guard to come press further and try to take over this bridge um, because that's what America does. We fucking destroy everything that's decent, including our own people. So or the people that we attempted to eradicate and couldn't. So there was a little low grade stress there, but. That low-grade stress doesn't have nearly as much of an impact when your body is able to move through that more natural state of stress for our bodies anyway, natural from our body's perspective, meaning big stress, big scare, and you can move through that and then it's okay. And that would happen at the daily at the daily marches up to the bridge where we would just stand in a line trying to prevent the army from taking over even more of a sovereign nation's ground. From there, people would come back and you have to deal with this as it as it spikes and as it crashes. That's that's the stress response. And the reason that this horrible situation wasn't traumatic for me or for many of the people, I mean, and it was traumatic, but it wasn't traumatic for many of us because it was just screwed up. And the difference between something being a screwed up, stressful situation and being a traumatic situation and being a traumatic situation is whether or not we had an empathetic observer present. That's a piece of information that I got from Gabor Mate. It makes all the difference. And it's it just it makes so much sense when you have somebody there to be like that was screwed up that was fucked that prevents us from thinking that we're crazy and that's the ultimate like reason why we think we're broken is because there wasn't anybody there to tell us that our mom was fucked up that dad shouldn't have done that that we never should have gone through these events and especially if there were things like sexual abuse then we definitely aren't going to talk about it. We're told not to talk about it, and then we feel ashamed. And then when you don't talk about that, there's no chance that it is not traumatic because there is no chance for an empathetic witness if you don't tell anybody about it. So the key phrase to remember is 
all trauma is stressful, but not all stress is traumatic. And what makes stress traumatic is the lack of an empathetic witness. And to me, that really speaks to the culture in America and the lack of empathy in our culture. Our culture is such a capitalistic driven culture that the first sign of burnout um, is actually a lack of empathy. That is the first sign that somebody is burning out when they have a lack of empathy for other people. And I believe that all of America is burnt out and we have a lack of empathy for each other, which is why we actually have in the U.S. a 30 percent higher PTSD rate for our veterans than the U.K. does given deployments in the exact same situations when they took. So what I mean by that is when they looked at. American PTSD rates and and the UK PTSD rates in order to make sure that they were like making a fair comparison they found play, they found platoons that were that were deployed to the same places around the same times doing similar jobs and they looked at PTSD rates when they got home and turns out the UK has 30% less PTSD than we do and i believe burnout and the lack of empathy and a complete lack of understanding as to what happened and what people had to do and what people had to go through like my brother when he was when he got deployed um the first he got deployed twice once to iraq and once to afghanistan and he told me at one point that he had to leave us a little girl locked in a cage as a Marine, he had to leave a little girl locked in the cage because they were trying to clear a building to make sure that it was safe. And the only thing in the building was a was a girl like he said, like maybe nine years old, locked in a cage. And he wanted to let her out so bad and he never got over it. He also never got over being up in a tower and calling in shots and saying, hey, there's this small child who is riding his bicycle. And he stopped on the side of the road to dig a hole and they were told to shoot. And shoot to kill. So the people that were there decided to shoot, but they tried not to shoot to kill. They tried to shoot the kid in just a way to like make him go away. And they uh, missed the shot. The first one was just like a, a, a close glancing, didn't actually hit the kid. And he got on his bike to go drive away. And they were like, all right, the kid's driving away. Cool. We're good. And headquarters was like, no, you're not. Your orders were shoot to kill. That kid could be planting an IED. It's either him or... It's a whole platoon of ours, what, your call, except it wasn't their call. They said, it's either us or it's them, so you need to kill that child. That type of shit, that's the type of shit nobody talks about. That's the type of shit that brings shame, deep, deep-seated shame. And shame is all about I am bad versus what I did is bad. And when you don't talk about it because it's shameful, because it makes you feel like a horrible person, even if you were just following orders, which mm, we can talk about that. We can talk about just following orders and how fucked up some of that is. And we can talk about the Nazis and all of that. I don't think it's any different than the kind of shit my brother went through. And he had no empathy for the situation that he went through because he never got to tell anybody outside of me. Maybe my dad or my sister. A few of the people that he was deployed with, which is why veterans do quite well, combat veterans specifically do quite well in a room with other combat veterans. Their symptoms seem to go away, even with never talking about what they went through, just because they're around people that they know who understand what they went through. Just that reduces PTSD symptoms and people who are decades away from their traumatic war time in their life. These are all the things that I talk about in Rethinking Broken. I, I, I wrote this book because I'd been, I'd been told so many times, I've lived such an interesting life that I've been told so many times that I should write a book or seven. And uh, apparently when I was, when I was, uh, releasing this and talking about it online and people who knew me, but we weren't really close. They all thought I was going to be a memoir. And I have had an interesting enough life that I could have written a memoir, but I don't like writing about me. It's still very uncomfortable. Maybe that's a trauma thing. Who knows? But I don't really like talking about me. Writing the my story section of that of the book, that took me longer than anything else did. 
I ignored it and ignored it and ignored it and ignored it and ignored it so many times. And it was so hard. It was so hard to write about me. So what I wanted to write about was what I've learned. Rather than just tell my story, I want to talk about pieces of my story and pieces of people like me. Their story, my friends, acquaintances, lovers even, people who have lived through trauma and have leveraged it. And that's my whole principle in this. That's There are two main, you know, two major contributions that I believe I am bringing to the conversation on trauma. One is the concept of chronic stress adaptation. We are not broken. We adapted appropriately to inappropriate circumstances. And for most of us, even if it was giant, like big T trauma, which I talk about big T and little t traumas, most of what we have to deal with as a child is chronic stress adaptation because even if it's a big T and it's an acute like abuse or sexual molestation or something like that, even if it's a big T trauma that's like made for TV, there's still the constant fear of it. And that constant fear of it makes us chronic stress adapted. In the same way that we become chronic stress adapted from a perfectionist mother who maybe you maybe you weren't beat, maybe you weren't locked in a closet or burned or molested or any of these other awful things, but you had a parent or two who was obsessed with appearances and keeping up appearances and they only praised you when you accomplished something. And we know that that actually causes narcissism. We know that um, narcissism is the, is the pretty much only, it is pretty much the only personality disorder that is directly tied to how we're raised. The other ones have a lot more variability. That one has some variability as well. But more than any other how a person is raised, their parents, like if you know somebody who has some narcissistic tendencies, you can guarantee that the reason is because they were only praised for their accomplishments when they were little. So if you know a narcissist, there's a little bit of empathy for you. There's a little story that you can use to sprinkle a little bit of empathy. Maybe not enough empathy to like date them or get back with them or spend too much time with them, but enough empathy to forgive them for their narcissism and still keep one's distance. So in Rethinking Broken, there are four sections. Section one is about brokenness. What is brokenness? How does it show up in our lives? How do we know if we're broken? And section two is all about the nuts and bolts biology of we actually aren't broken. What we are is chronic stress adapted. And I walk you through the biology of what happens to a nervous system, to a body, a human body under duress during development. I talk about a few key pieces of anatomy that are affected by chronic stress in development. I talk about the prefrontal cortex and we talk about the amygdala, the hippocampus and the vagus nerve. And I try to and I kept it just to those. There are other things that are that are implicated as well, many many other things, but I tried to keep it to those because those are the most prominent at least in the pieces that I wanted to talk about with folks. Because the vagus nerve acts as our braking system. And so one of the things that happens when we are chronic stress adapted is when we get upset, we get more upset than the average person, and that upset lasts longer than the average person. Like a a non-traumatized, if that exists, a less traumatized, to be more accurate, person will feel something, get upset, and then calm down in an hour or few. Whereas somebody who is chronic stress adapted, somebody with a lot of trauma in their background, they will ramp up. We ramp up and we get very angry or we get very scared. We get very dysregulated. And when we feel all ramped up that way, we stay ramped up for a couple of reasons, one of which is that we don't have the braking system that we're supposed to have. And that braking system is the vagus nerve. That vagus nerve is supposed to 
be the internal communication system. It's like the internal email server that lets the body communicate with itself. And when a chronic stress adapted person gets all upset, the vagus nerve is that's supposed to be the communication system is, is not fully developed in a way that it can communicate quickly to the other parts of its body, our body. So we don't get the message to calm down. And even if we did, we don't really know how because typically no one showed us. Which is another huge point I would like to make about Rethinking Broken and about trauma in general. I am a huge fan of self-regulation. I teach a couple of self-regulation techniques in the book, including the physiological side. I'm a huge fan of yoga nidras and progressive muscle relaxations and of meditation. But ultimately, self-control in that form, the self-regulation is a band-aid. It is a very important band-aid. Band-aids are very important. Band-aids can help to keep us keep a wound from becoming infected, and that's really, really important. We need to be able to regulate ourselves so we can not fly off the handle. But that's only a band-aid. The human species co-evolved in decently large social groups. And we rely on our social groups for pretty much everything. And we rely on them first and foremost for regulation. As, I guess not first. We rely on them for food and for shelter. We build houses together. We gather food together. We gather water together. We make, we make vessels and tools and things together. And we definitely co-regulate. And that, I believe, should be the gold standard. But in a world where we're all burnt out and nobody has any empathy, we don't give a shit. We don't give a shit about helping somebody else regulate. We only want somebody to regulate us when we're upset. And we go to our significant others. And those of us who are chronic stress adapted, we go to our, our significant others for them to regulate us. And half the time we're mad about it because we don't want them to have to regulate us. We want to be able to do it ourselves. And that's their job. So you regulate me now. And we get kind of bossy and demanding with it occasionally. Um, and, you know, that's that's the way it goes sometimes. And we ought to definitely try to not take too much out on our partners. But I talk a lot about what happens with our experience of love. There is a section of the book that talks about how love and trauma intermingle our experiences of love and our experience of pain because of trauma, because of especially if there's childhood abuse, when our experience of love and our experience of pain comes from the same place, aka our parents, our caregivers, when we are little, then kind of forever until we actively decouple them, love is painful. And in some way, pain is love. Because Anything that's not similarly painful and similarly loving just feels too foreign for it to be nice, if that makes any sense. When somebody is, somebody loves so differently from you, if you come from a loud, boisterous family where people are always teasing each other and cutting up and you're like bumping shoulders and you're like nudging each other with elbows and you're always giving each other crap and... Like, but that's that's the that's the family that you come from, and you all have great love for each other. And you mix that with an, another family. You date somebody who is from a family who is not that way. They keep everything on the inside. They don't tease each other. They're always polite. They're always kind. Both can be perfectly happy and perfectly healthy. But if you come from that, if you come from that teasing family, you're not going to find that the way this person shows love is interesting to you. It won't feel like love because your experience of love is very different from theirs. And the same is true on the other end. The person who comes from the well-to-do, more reserved family is going to very possibly could experience the other person's form of love as mean, as mean-spirited and teasing. And that's not nice or appropriate. And that's going to be offensive. 
And how weird is that? That like the way that you show love is offensive to somebody. So the way that we experience and interplay with love is intimately tied up with what our young life was like. And that's one of the hardest things for us as chronic stress adapted people. Relationships are always hard. Romantic relationships are the hardest. And I believe that the reason that they are the hardest is because for CSA people, chronic stress adapted people, it's the hardest because when that experience of love and pain comes from the same place, you have to decouple it. And the way that you do that is through relationship because that damage that was originally done was relational damage. It was, it was damage between two people or maybe more than, more than two people, but that damage was relational. And the only way to solve relational damage is in relationship. And that deep, deep, deep pain is only ever touched by the people that we date, the people that we sleep with, the people that we have long-term romantic relationships with. That's just the way that it winds up working out. And so if you come from a challenging home, let's call it that, then... I did a podcast a while back called The Reason That You Marry The Wrong Person or The Reason We All Marry The Wrong Person. It has to do with that pain. It has to do with that coupling of pain and love because essentially when we fall for somebody, they have to hurt us similarly to the way that our parents did or the way that our caregivers did. If they don't, we won't find it interesting. But then the problem is that they hurt us in the same way that our parents or our family did. So what do you do about it? Well, you change the ending. That's what you have to do about it. The, in, the beginning has to be the same in order for us to change the end, right? Which is why we fall for toxic people. That's why we fall for people who hurt us. That's why I had an ex who stabbed me twice and I stayed with him for like years afterward. Because... I deserved it. I shouldn't have been so drunk. I couldn't defend myself for my own honor because I had no idea what happened because I was also blackout drunk. And that was the way life was for me. That was what I thought I deserved. And because I couldn't prove that I had acted perfectly, essentially, um, which would have been the only reason that it would have been not okay to stab me was that I did absolutely nothing wrong because I couldn't prove that. Well, clearly I deserved it. So I stayed, stayed for years. And that's not, that's not a great way to be, but that is who I felt. That's who I fell for. And I, I would fall for people like that consistently. Not every ex stabbed me, but I had others who were like, no matter what I did, no matter what I did, they were incessantly, chronically disappointed in me. Nothing I ever did was good enough, which sounds just like my father and my mother. But for my father, nothing was good enough. For my mother, nothing really mattered. Nothing I did mattered. She was just too busy working and dealing with her now wife's drama. Because Nancy is just a drama queen all the time. She's incessant and loud. And the phrase I heard the most growing up about Nancy was, I just don't want to hear her mouth. And I'd get mad and I'd bring up like, why are we doing this? Like, why is this okay? And the answer would always be because I don't want to hear her mouth, which is why to this day, I will never, almost never wind up being okay with letting somebody ruin the thing because I don't, I, I don't want to hear their mouth. If I don't want to hear your mouth, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you right then. And I'm be like, no, that's not okay. You need to shut the fuck up. You need to shut your fucking mouth. We're done. Because you're not going to ruin my time. And all of that is leftover drama from my childhood. Still working on that. But those kinds of, these kinds of parallels between our early life and our relationships later on, they all start the same because our job as CSA people is to change the ending. It sucks that they all have to start the same, but if they didn't start the same, it wouldn't be the same story. So we wouldn't be able to rewrite the ending. We'd be writing a brand new story. And... Writing a brand new story when the last one isn't complete, it just doesn't feel good. 
it's not that nice. And sometimes maybe we can. Sometimes it's so crappy you can just give up on it and move on. But I don't think that that actually lasts very long. I think that most of us really, really deeply on a biological level, we desire reconciliation for the parts of us that were damaged when we were young. And we live out that reconciliation through our relationships as adults. And hopefully our job is to rewrite the ending. Now, what does that mean? I keep saying rewrite the ending. What I mean by that is, what was the outcome? How did things resolve for you as a kid, or did they? And the chances are are that they didn't. They didn't actually resolve. You just kind of walked away or forgot things or let them slide or whatever until you could get the hell out of your family. You can get out of the house or out of your town or out of your own state or clear to the cross to the other side of the country like I did. And so what that means is, I have to say the things to my partners that I wish I could say to my mother and father when I was a child. I have to say whatever it is that I need to say to my partners in order for them, in order for me to get them to treat me the way that I feel I deserve to be treated. And that's how I, that's how I uncouple the pain from the love. It's when I love somebody my partner, like right now, we're not even technically dating, but we call it. But when people ask, we'll say boyfriends just to make things easy. When I have an issue with something, I have to immediately bring it up and be like, uh uh-uh, uh, no, this is not okay. This is why he's kind of dense. It takes him a while. I'm, if I'm, if he's a crock pot, I'm the microwave, which again, I stole from Brene Brown because it was just adorable. That's the way she describes her and her husband. I'm definitely the microwave. He's definitely the crock pot. And I have to say, no, this is not okay. I want you to do this. I need you to prioritize me. And I need you to prioritize me about these things because these are the ones that hurt me the most from childhood. And thank goodness, most of the time he tries. Also, most of the time he kind of fails, but he tries. And that's that's changing the ending because I felt like my mother never tried. I felt like my father never really tried. Never tried to. They tried in their own ways, but they never tried in the way that I needed them. Because my father never tried to accept me because accepting me shattered his worldview. His worldview being a Bible-thumping Christian with a with a associate's degree in Bible doctrine and theology from the Community College of the Air Force. He could never, ever accept me because he clung on to his religion so hard that accepting me would mean throwing away his entire worldview. And that's all he has. So he'll never accept me. And that's okay. My mother, I never felt important. I never felt like I mattered. And as I said early on, my mother and I have managed to to repair our relationship beautifully. And when I say, you know, I probably shouldn't say we managed to repair the relationship. I had something to do with it, sure. But mostly she repaired the relationship. And she repaired the relationship by texting me every single morning. When I refused to give her, her my phone number, she found a way to get my number from my sister, from some, from my cousin, from somebody every single time. Because I changed my number a couple of times because I moved around a lot. It was the military. She would get my number and she would text me every morning. And every morning I would ignore her text. I would answer literally, literally maybe two or three times a year. That's it. And I would get, and I'm, I'm not kidding, with like five, five days a week at least, every time she was on her way to work, she would, she would message me. And this was after Caleb died, my brother, um, which is a whole other piece of the thing. I haven't even, <laughs> there's so much to talk about. This is why I had to write a book. But it was that consistent effort over time that made me feel like she actually cared about me, that she wanted to be a part of my life. That I wasn't just a burden on her. I wasn't just another thing that she had to do or had to take care of. And that's what fixed our relationship. And I still have damage about feeling not prioritized or not important. And I work that out with Michael on a regular basis. Because chronic stress adaptation, most of the time, it really deeply fucks with our experience of love. 
and what we think love should be. It's unfortunate, but that's the reality. So that's another piece of what I talk about in the book. And then the section two was all biology. Section three is another piece that I consider to be my big contribution in this book. The first being chronic stress adaptation, viewing trauma as a adaptation to chronic stress. And the other is the concept of a strengthness, which is kind of silly sounding, but it works. It's really simple and it works because we have we have weakness, like something can be a weakness, but we don't have a strengthness. Um, and I think that we should, which is why I made it up. But in my case, a strengthness is both a strength and a weakness in one. A strengthness is an attribute, a piece of ourselves that is very basic in its, in its origin. In its origin, it's just a stress response. And each stress response, we have the Fs, right? We have fight, flight, freeze, fawn, and fuck. And each of those are different strategies that work in different situations, and our body will launch the strategy that it thinks is most likely to work at any moment in time. But for those of us with chronic stress adaptation, we have had to rely on a stress response chronically, one or more of them, right? And whichever stress response our body launched successfully the most times, that becomes our default response, because everything in the, in the body is use it or lose it. And when we do one thing over and over again, especially as young children, our brains adapt to it very, very quickly. And we get really good at doing that one thing and responding that one way. We, we get really good at it. We get so good at it, it becomes a facet of who we are, right? And we all have these individual facets that are, in my opinion based in our biology, because that's that's the machinery that we exist in. I believe that we're spiritual, conscious beings and physical bodies. And the physical body is what gives rise to that consciousness. And it's how we interact with the world. So everything starts there. And as we move through our chronic stress and we launch one or two of the same stress responses over and over and over again... That becomes a primary part of our personality. It is an aspect of us that grows too big for its britches and eventually becomes unwieldy. And that's the difference to me between an attribute and a strengthness, is that an attribute is a part of you that you can use when appropriate. And a strengthness is a part of you that pops up and wants to be used whether you like it or not and whether the context is appropriate for it or not. So your strengthness is a strength and a weakness in one. Now, what makes it a strength and what makes it a weakness? When does when does one happen over the other? And the answer to that is context. I used to say I don't have and it used to just be fight flight freeze. But now we've added fawn and sex for the 5 Fs. And I used to say I don't have fight flight freeze. I only have fight, fight, and fuck you. And I think I've said that on this podcast before because fighting became one of my strengthnesses. The ability to be like, no, fuck you. I will not back down. I would rather get my ass beat than back down. That also has some fun stories, but there, that, there's, a, there's a piece of one of those stories as to why that's a part of me in the book when I lost a fight to a guy who ironically thought I was stealing his girlfriend. But that part of me, the fighter part of me, is a strengthness of mine. I have helped many people, myself included. Uh, I specifically am thinking of a time at Pacific College of Oriental Medicine when I went to PCOM and was studying acupuncture and herbology and Chinese medicine. There was a friend of mine who had been totally screwed over by the school. She was supposed to get her student loan money and didn't, and she'd been waiting an entire term and some change for it. And it was thousands of dollars, and she was struggling to pay bills and to eat and to pay for school. And she's like a grown woman, and this is a master's program. 
that was being rolled into an into an entry level doctorate or a first professional doctorate's program, and I used my strengthness to basically start a war with the the school and be like, oh, they haven't paid you and you've been talking to them? Are these on emails? And I went, cool. Between my my strengthness of being a fighter and my background in the Air Force and the, my my love of keeping a paper trail, thanks to my time in the Air Force, I was like, okay, baby, let's go. And we put together a huge folder of every email that was there, all the information that was necessary. We I put we put uh, color coded. Um, post-its on there and I asked her if she wanted me to go into the uh, the dean's office with her to talk and she was like no I think we have everything now like uh, uh, now it's all organized so I was like cool organized it told her what to kind of do or say or whatever and the dean took care of it she walked out with a check for the amount of money that they owed her that only happened because of my strengthness that only happened because of my strengthness but also when I left that school I left having launched two federal investigations on the school itself. I left because I could not focus a single minute on my actual schooling anymore. I became so obsessed with how crooked the school was, how how just garbage everything that they did was, how how garbage they treated the professors, how the professors hadn't gotten raises in decades, how they were constantly overworking all the professors to make them come up with new, make them come up with new class schedules and things so the school could get some other new accreditation. They had, they were the most highly accredited oriental medicine program in the United States. And that was their claim to fame. So they just kept trying to get more accreditations and they didn't give a shit what happened to the teachers, that they were forcing these teachers with no extra pay to create entirely entirely new curriculums that would match what the school needed in order for them to get this new this new accreditation. They didn't care whether the students learned anything or not. They didn't care if the teachers were exhausted. These teachers were some of the best in the world and they had to they had to work as a as a teacher, then also do clinic hours where they were trying to where they were teaching us in clinic how to operate as an acupuncturist and an herbalist and then go home, have a family and a private practice just so they could pay their fucking bills. And I became so obsessed with how crooked and fucked up the school was that I couldn't focus anymore. And it totally screwed me over. Absolutely fucked me. And the difference was context. My same fighting thing, I showed up. I showed up to a meeting with um, one of the guys called it Mass Facts. I showed up to a meeting, Mass Facts, and I had everything that they had ever done wrong. I had so much evidence. I had multiple folders in front of me. I had like seven pages open on my laptop and I went in. I spent three months solid doing research on Quad Partners, who was the venture capitalist company that bought the school. I've looked into the other companies that they had bought before and found out that they bought ITT Tech. One of the guys on the board was part of the group that bought ITT Tech and ran them out of business. This it was screwed up. But without getting myself more dysregulated, that was my strengthness showing up. My fighter. My fighter showed up. And in that instance, I showed up fighting when I should have been studying. But it was obsessive. And that's why it's a strengthness. It was a strength and a weakness. When I helped that girl, it was a strength. When I helped my friend, when I decided to take on the entire school and launch two federal investigations, I became so obsessed that I fucked myself completely. And I'm still paying for it. So that is the concept of a strengthness. It is both a strength and a weakness. And the difference between the two is context. That's why meditation is key, which is the first chapter in section four. Section three is about finding your strengthness. It's about, because that's a kind of a weird abstract thing, but thinking about what skills you developed, what habits you developed through your chronic stress adaptation, 
and seeing how those habits still show up in your life, both in a good way and in a not so good way. And taking accountability for that, taking inventory of it and then taking accountability of it. And that's what section three is all about. I, I've created four, four exercises that you fill out in the book to help you find what your strengthnesses are. And I tell a few stories, um, including one, my, one of my favorite stories to tell about a refugee physicist in Tijuana. And you'll have to read the book to have that story because it's a really awesome story and it's kind of long. But section three helps you to find what your strengthness is. And the entire concept to me is it's all about rethinking broken, right? And this concept that we are broken, we have so much evidence for it. It is almost impossible to undo it. That's why section two is nothing but the science. It is nothing but the science that proves that you actually, on a biological level, adapted appropriately to an inappropriate circumstances. And because we are, pro we are designed to be programmed in early life and then to play out that programming for the rest of our lives, that chronic stress adapted programming still shows up in our lives now. And that strengthness is how it shows up. That's what section three is all about. And section four is the long-term stuff, starting with meditation. Because after you find your strengthness, you have to find a context in which your strengthness is useful. I am very good in a crisis, which is why I do crisis care. It's why I do refugee care. It's why I do it's why I do pop-up clinics in cities where and and where people really really need help. It's why I th I thrive in those situations. I do really well in them naturally with very little effort on my part. My body can like will still pay a price because stress is stress, period. But what happens when you use your strengthness, when you use the skills that you developed in childhood, consciously, consciously being the key. Because the thing is, most of us actually act out because, like I said, it happens whether we like it or not. So in some circumstances, it's great. And we're like, oh, I'm awesome. And then 10 minutes later, that same strengthness will activate again and it'll fuck something over. And we're like, I'm garbage. So the idea is once you find what your strengthness is, then you need to find a context in which your strengthness is useful. Mine, I do so well in emergency medicine, refugee care, that sort of thing. When people are in absolute crisis, I'm cool as a cucumber. That's a wonderful way for me to do it. And that's true for a lot of people who had a lot of chaos in their lives, emergency medicine, whether it's like EMT or ER or nurse or something, emergency medicine is a really great place for us to be because there can be chaos and it's not our chaos and we get to make sense of that chaos and we get to help somebody else through the same thing that we went through. Similar thing that we went through anyway. So that's the end of section three is finding a, finding a context that you can repeatedly put yourself in that allows you to consciously leverage the skills that you got in childhood to make sure that finally, without a shadow of a doubt, you'll know that you are not broken, that you adapted appropriately to inappropriate circumstances. And all that's happening is that you are playing out that programming and that programming is strong. And for those of us with real adaptations to that chronic stress, those of us with lots of trauma, that programming is extra, extra strong. And so it shows up whether we like it or not. And when we use it, like I have with refugee care or like my friend I talk about in the book has done with sales, when we leverage our strengthnesses, we no longer can like mindfully, consciously knowing what we're doing with them. We can't ever believe that we are broken. We just have to recognize that, oh, no, we have a tendency to do this. And sometimes that tendency is good. And sometimes that tendency is less good. And the difference is context. So put yourself in a context regularly that allows you to use your strengthness, hopefully for the betterment of somebody else. Because um, that's a big thing for us as well. One of the last chapters in section four is about service and being chronic stress adapted. There's a huge thing in that for you. But section four is all about the long term road. Cool. Well, you no longer believe that you're broken. 
And that's really all that I care about. I don't, at least with this book, because when you believe that you are broken, and this is the prime reason right here, this, this what I'm about to say is the reason I wrote this book. If you believe that you are broken, like I believed I was broken, no matter what goes wrong, even if you have an ex who stabs you or a boyfriend who stabs you, you'll believe it's your fault. You see, when we think we're broken, whenever something goes wrong, there's always a scapegoat. That scapegoat is always us. And whether we know that consciously or not, man, it screws everything. Because if you believe that you're broken, whenever you try to do anything hard and you come up against a problem that you can't quite solve, well, you're just going to chalk it up to it's because you're broken. It's because you're dumb. It's because of you somehow, some way. You'll find some way to pin it on you and then move on. And be like, fine. And you just give up. Which is why we screw ourselves over so much. Believing that, that we're broken is unilaterally an expression of shame. Because again, Brene Brown says that what shame is versus what guilt is, shame tells us that we are bad. And guilt tells us that what we did is bad. Rethinking broken is about removing the shame. It's about removing the concept that we believe that we are bad or we believe that we are broken. Because, you know, at the, at the center of it all, at the heart of many, many, many of us, we believe that we are not enough. We believe that we are broken. And if we continue to believe that, we'll never accomplish the things that we want to accomplish, which then just feed that monster more. It just feeds that monster that much more. That, well, clearly I'm broken. So the entire purpose of this book, Rethinking Broken, in the early on I say, this book is not meant to solve all your problems. In fact, it is meant to solve exactly one of them. The one problem it's meant to solve is that you believe that you are broken. If you believe you are broken, that is a problem. And that is a problem that echoes eternally till the moment that you die. And probably further, because that belief will then get embedded in your children and your children's children, so on. Until the end of time, or somebody, hopefully, later on in your lineage decides to deal with it. And that's the reason I wrote the book, was to get rid of the thought I'm broken forever and ever. My goal is to get every person, every traumatized person, to get to a place where they understand that they are not the impediment in their life. I am not the impediment in my life. I've got some programming that may be a little bit troublesome. But I am not my programming. I am bigger than that. And the only way that I can actually say that and believe that is by acting on it. Which means taking the time to put myself, to figure out what my strengths are. And to put myself in situations where my strengths are useful. Especially to help other people. And then I know that I'm not broken. I'm using those algorithms to help the world and to make the world a better place. Beyond that, all I really want you to do is to be able to maintain the ability to be in context, which is very, very hard. In a, I mean, you could say, and it has been said, that trauma, in a way, is when a person is no longer able to live in the present. And I, yeah, that's true. There's a lot of ways to describe trauma that are all true. And that's why the first bit is all about meditation and mindfulness. Because mindfulness is what allows us that gap between what we want to do and what we actually do. 
the reason it does that is because it allows us to understand our context. When we sit and we meditate, we practice mindfulness, all we're doing is becoming aware of what we are experiencing. That's it. You're just becoming aware of what you're experiencing. And the only thing that you can experience is your own body and your own immediate environment. That's it. That is your context. Your body and your immediate environment, both your physical immediate environment, but also what happened five minutes ago and ten minutes ago, yesterday. All of that is part of our context, right? And when we meditate, what we're doing is we're learning to tune in to our context. And eventually we learn to tune in to our own bodies, which is very difficult for some for most CSA people because of that whole inability to downregulate being in our bodies is well frankly painful especially early on thank god being inside my body isn't that bad anymore but oh it was for a long time that's why I was an alcoholic that's why I am an alcoholic and don't drink anymore because being in my body was miserable and it wasn't until I got out of the military and started getting into Buddhism and reading Buddhist scriptures and going to sanghas and doing meditations every single day that I started to understand my body and understand how I'm reacting to things. Because I thought I wasn't that reactive. I thought I was good at like squashing stuff. And I was to a degree. But really, all I was squashing was the variety I was squashing like the variety of emotions. There are many, many emotions. I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of emotions. And I used to only have one. It was anger. Well, maybe horny. But it was one of those two. I was either angry or horny. And that was it. And everything that I experienced got turned into anger. Sadness turned into anger. Happiness turned into anger. Like joy, anger, jealousy anger like none of them like i i would i got to a place where i had to realize that if i feel angry i have to go okay what do i think i'm angry about and then look at the thing i'm angry about and be like what would a normal person feel what should i feel here and then be like oh i should probably feel jealousy oh my jealousy is automatically being processed as anger because that's my programming where i come from in the Midwest, boys aren't allowed to cry. Boys aren't allowed to be sad. Boys aren't allowed to have feelings or emotions at all. All you're allowed is stress, anger, and horny. So there you go. I didn't want to do that anymore. And the way that I saw out of it, the way that I found out of it, was through meditation. Because then I got to notice when my body was starting to react to something. And now I rely on what I call biomarkers or feelings in my physical body, my biology, that denote that I'm changing, that I'm ramping up or that I'm ramping down. When my body feels a certain way, I use that as a biomarker to go, hmm, something's happening. Be aware of this. Watch this closely. Otherwise, one of my strengthenses might come flying out and hurt somebody. And I don't want to do that. So section four is all about how to maintain a, uh, well, frankly, it feels boring. If you want to, if I'm going to be really honest with you, if you're as chronic stress adapted as I am, I'm basically the section four is how to live a, a boring life. Um, that's the way it feels. It's it's about meditation. It's about movement. It's about journaling. It's like there was a there was a whole chapter on theater, but the book was too long, so we cut that one out. There was a chapter on kintsugi as well, because it's such a great analogy. But cut that one out as well, and it's because section four is all about how to maintain the stability. And frankly, for chronic stress adapted people, stability feels boring. And that's why it's so hard for us is because stability is not fulfilling. And that is a part of our programming. And that I really want to drive home to you. Stability is not fulfilling because of our programming. If, if, if you had a stable childhood and that stability nurtured you, then you would love stability. But you, I didn't. I didn't have any. So I hate it. It makes me very uncomfortable and it's boring. So I don't like it. So for some of us, section four is all about how to live a boring life and let that actually like be good and feel good. 
because it's about how to maintain your trajectory once you deal with this one problem, this one problem of I am broken. That one belief is the epicenter of every stupid fucking thing that I've ever done. And that's why I wrote the book. Is I want people to not make the same stupid fucking mistakes that I did. And I'm not very good at learning from other people's mistakes. I'm getting better at it. But hopefully there are a few people in the world who are good at it, who can learn from mine. Because when I got to the end of the book, after I like finished it and listened to it from beginning to end, I cried. I got to the conclusion, finished the conclusion. I was at the coffee shop and I had to walk outside and I sat on top of my van and I just cried. Because it was everything that I wanted. It was everything I wished that I had when I was 19. When I first heard the word codependency and found out about psychology and found out about trauma and found out about programming and started this process of figuring out who the hell I am, it's everything I wish I knew then. And I hope that it's everything that you want to know. When I was working with my editor on it, I just wrote everything out because I came across this concept that a good book needs to be everything you need to know and nothing that you don't. So I figured I'd write everything I need to know and give it to my, give it to my uh, editor, who was then in charge of the everything you don't part. And she was only able to help me cut those two sections that I already knew was going to cut the, uh, the theater chapter and the Kintsugi chapter. So hopefully... If you get it, you like here. You got a you got a good chunk of of what the book is about. The overarching pieces, anyway. Many of them, maybe almost half. I don't know. <laughs> I've shared with you quite a bit uh, because I like talking. I like talking. It's easier than writing. It's definitely easier than the grammar part of writing. But I hope that this helps you. I hope that this makes you interested, and I hope that you'll read the book. I hope that you'll buy and read the book. If you don't know anything about it yet, if this is the first that you're hearing about it, or if you have already heard about it, but you haven't yet signed up for the Rethinking Broken newsletter, you can go to www.rethinkingbroken.com and there's information about the book there. But first, there'll be a pop-up that has a different book on it called Emotions Are Logical which is my best-selling my best-selling new release. It is my that book is my uh that is my claim to fame for being a bestseller and it is one of the chapters of rethinking broken emotions are logical but i fleshed it out way more and told a bunch of stories and i think it's kind of cute it's basically a short story that that um walks you through kind of what it's like to have complex ptsd which is very very overlappy with chronic stress adaptation and you'll get a free copy of that. You can either go pay $3.99 on Amazon for it, or you can go to RethinkingBroken.com and sign up for the free newsletter, and you will get a free copy of that. And the newsletter, I only make a newsletter when something is like worth putting out. I don't do weekly or even monthly. I only put out a newsletter when there is something to say. So I won't, I won't badger you. I hope that you'll check it out, and I hope that this has been a good podcast for you. I hope that you got something out of it, and I hope that you understand a bit as to what Rethinking Broken is about. I've been talking about it for ages, but today is a little overview of it. Next week, I'm going to talk about what my writing process has been like. I'm going to talk about what I started writing, when I started writing, why I started writing, where I went. Um, it was really cool. I locked myself away in Costa Rica for two months at a coffee farm and a yurt made entirely of bamboo by a bamboo-exclusive architect. I'm a, a Costa Rican guy. Anyway, really cool stories. Got to meet some incredible people who are still wonderful friends of mine. And it's been a journey, man. And I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. So join me next week, and I hope to see you there. Thank you very much for spending your time with me. If you enjoyed the podcast, consider leaving a review. That would be great. Thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. And remember, stay curious and stay uncomfortable. Stay uncomfortable.